everyone. Welcome back to That on Paper podcast. I'm Grace Atwood. And I'm Becca Freeman. And we have a really, really amazing guest with us today. We have Simon Doonan. So we're going to tell you all about him and we're going to talk to him later. But first, we're going to talk about us. Grace, what's your, what is your high? My high. This has been a really big week for the podcast. We um, we announced our New York live show. Tickets are on sale now. Tickets are selling fast. Yeah, they're selling really fast, which is exciting. Um, we recorded with Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford was at this table with us, which was crazy. That episode is going to be up in, I think, late October. And um, it's just been like one of those weeks where I'm like, wait, this is my life. This is so cool. It doesn't feel real. You know when something really cool happens to you and like, if it happened to somebody else, you'd be like, that's amazing. And it happens to you and you're like, I feel shell-shocked where I'm like, mm-hmm. what's happening? Yeah, exactly. And then we just finished our travel plans for San Francisco. We booked a really nice hotel. We're staying at the Park 55. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I oh, booked it. Yeah. News to me. We, we have not seen each other in a day or two. I've been working on our travel arrangements. Do you mean we haven't seen each other in 12 hours? Because I think that's... Oh, it the- was. We watched the debates together last night. You guys, this has been the longest week. I literally feel like I'm going crazy. It's been 12 hours, but it feels like two days. I'm so excited to be in San Francisco. I'm so excited about Cindy. I'm so excited about our New York show. There's just a lot going on. Highs and highs and highs. Highs and highs and highs. Becca, what about you? Um, Okay, so I have two, and now I feel like an asshole because neither one of them have to do with the podcast. So (laughs) first one, I was in Palm Beach last weekend. I was at my favorite hotel. It's like my very favorite place on the planet. I want to go. It looks so nice. So if you didn't listen last time, it's the Breakers in Palm Beach, and it's just this beautiful hotel that is – it's just so nice. It looked really nice on your stories. And my favorite thing in the world is to be somewhere where I can see the beach – but I'm not getting sandy. So I'm like, I'm at a pool that overlooks the beach. I like that. I like that. I feel like I feel guilty about that. I grew up on the ocean living at the beach. So I love the beach, but I get that. I can but respect it. But I'm the person it. where like, if I go in the sand, I'm covered in sand. You don't I, like sand. I don't mind it, but it's it's a spectacle. Like I am head to toe covered in sand if I go on a beach. I didn't realize not liking sand was even a thing until I started online dating and I'd see people put like the things they like and they don't like and sand comes up a lot as a dislike. Oh. Yeah. Maybe next time just like be I'll like, just forward those profiles yeah. to you. I didn't realize you were a fellow sand hater. I don't hate it. I just don't love it. Okay. I'm sand neutral. <laughs> so I was in Palm Beach. It was amazing. It was I was there for a bachelorette party so it was a little busy. It was less relaxing. I only read one book, which was a disappointment. I packed four. Um, so that was wonderful. And then this weekend, I'm having my housewarming party. I'm finally done enough with my apartment to have people over. I mean, I've had people over, but to like formally have people over. I can't wait. It's the only thing on my calendar all weekend, which is intentional. I'm excited. I'm getting mini chicken biscuits from Pies and Thighs. Yeah, I'm going to make rainbow fruit skewers. Amazing. I'm going to make a signature cocktail that is yet to be determined. You've got time. I have 12 hours. Yeah. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. Let's be negative. Let's be negative. So our luxurious, we co- we're starting to call our building the luxurious shanty because we have these big apartments and they're really nice. But there's it's been a lot a of problems. It's just a well-furnished shanty. There are a lot of problems. So this week, um, there was so much construction. Like, it woke me up at, at 7 
like ear splitting drills. I was walking around my house in my noise canceling headphones because I couldn't focus. Of course, that was the day that I also had like my day of phone calls. So it was like, I'm talking, I'm hearing a voice. There's a saw, there's a drill, there's a jackhammer. It was awful. I felt like I needed a panic room. I actually sat in my <laughs> I actually sat down in my bathtub to take one phone call. I was like I closed the door and just sat in the tub. I was like, "All right, we're going to do this." That's honestly not a bad idea. Yeah, but as a result of the construction comes Becca's low. Yeah, so um speaking about <laughs> our well-furnished shanty, we had a mouse problem this week. So, on Wednesday, I guess it was, I was sitting at my kitchen island and doing work, and all of a sudden I see something out of the corner of my eye. And it's a fucking mouse. <laughs> and he's just like being very flagrant. Like we call him fashion mouse. He was fashion mouse. Like he was showing off. He was like doing a street style catwalk. Like he was just all over my apartment. I didn't see him once. I saw him seven times. He kept coming out. He was like, look at me. I'm here. Do you want to take my photo? I have a full camera roll of photos of him. So we have this mouse. I obviously lose my mind, like legit lose my mind. And the solution, obviously, is to sit Indian style on a high chair because, mm-hmm. like, it's not to do anything proactive. It's just to make sure he can't get me. Because he's totally coming for you. He's coming for me. Tiny mouse. So I call our landlord, scream at her because I was very frazzled and she's a mixed bag. <laughs> so the exterminator comes yesterday and they see the mouse, but they can't catch the mouse. He came out in front of the exterminator? I didn't yeah. realize this he, part. Yeah, he ran – he ran underneath the stove and they were like, we're going to get him. And then they like couldn't get him. So I have like a million mouse traps in my apartment right now. How many? 13? 13. Not a million. 13. So then last night, we are watching the debates. And we we got sushi. We were at Grace's apartment. We're watching the debates. And our friend Alex, who lives upstairs, texts us. And she's like, get up here right this minute. So she has got the mouse and cornered – well, her cat got the mouse. And the mouse is cornered in the bathroom. And is half It was so sad. Dead. It was really cute. And he's, like, half dead. And so the three of us, me, Grace, and Alex, are like, well, we got to we gotta do this. Mm-hmm. It's on us. So we lock ourselves in Alex's bathroom with the supplies being the lid to a walk. And a magazine. And a fashion magazine. And a trash bag. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're, we're doing this. So we slid the magazine under the walk. Well, no. First, Alex oh. trapped him with yes. the walk lid. And then we were like, what the fuck do we do now? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> we, we caught him. Do we just, like, let him die in the bathroom under this walk lid? Or, like, what do we do? So then we took a fashion magazine and we slid it under. And then it was, like, a three-person process to get all of this into the bag. The walk lid is gone. Yes. Nobody, nobody needed that. Alex did let the mouse out across the street. So he's going to live with our neighbors. I feel... I know that I feel cruel to say this, but I wish she didn't let him go. Like, I wish she just put him in the trash in the sealed trash bag. Becca! I, I don't want him to come back. What if he has a sense of nostalgia? I don't think he's that smart. I think that he needs to go live on the streets. What if he smells? What if he, like, enjoys the scent of the Santal candle in my apartment and he's lured back to it? I don't think he will. Oh. Becca, we can't kill cre- innocent creatures. We can kill mice. <laughs> it was a saga... We were, I wouldn't say we were brave, but we did it. We were very brave. I think we were brave. We'd had wine. Yeah, we had wine and sushi, and we were powered by the debates. So hopefully it's the only mouse. I haven't seen another mouse. We keep saying that, oh, we got the one mouse, like, because that's, obviously there's probably a family. Stop it. I know. Anyway, so our house is, like, falling down. Yeah. It just looks nice on Instagram. (laughs) It looks so nice on Instagram. It's, it's. (laughs) 
Don't be jealous. This is the real, the real truth. Just telling you. Yes. So, in medium news, news that is better than our mouse. Can we talk about our live shows for a sec? Yes. Okay, so exciting news. Our New York show, tickets are on sale. It's November 1st. This one's going to sell out pretty quickly, I think. I think so, too, at Gramercy Theater. It's been on sale right now for six hours, and it's going. Yeah. So I'm so excited. We did our first New York show April 1st. So this is the seven-month anniversary of our first New York show. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that. Yeah, April 1st to November 1st. Seven months, yeah. Seven months. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's a seven-month anniversary. I'm excited because it's our hometown show. So I feel like, first of all, our friends are going to come. And second of all, our guest lineup is going to be bonkers. Very excited. Very excited. So get tickets, badonpaperpodcast.com slash live. But enough about New York. I want to talk about San Francisco, which is our first show. Yes. This is major. We're so excited. So it's October 2nd. If you haven't gotten your ticket and you live in San Francisco, get your ticket now. Um, We have Jasmine Guillory joining us, which is so exciting. She's one of our absolute favorite authors. We're completely obsessed with her. She has a new book coming out the same time as the live show so she's going to be talking about that and then we also have our best friend jackie and if you remember the very early episode she was our first guest when we were in mexico and she is fantastic she's from hawaii she works at sephora she's my favorite person and i don't know what we're going to talk about but she knows all she knows where the bodies are buried she knows all the bad stories about us it's gonna be fun and we also have one of my first friends through blogging victoria mckinley so victoria has um, so many interesting stories. But the reason I wanted to have her on is she is somebody who has completely revamped her career um, just through being scrappy and like teaching herself things. So she designs my site. She designs e-commerce sites for all sorts of big websites. She designs for a lot of bloggers and she's completely self-taught. So I can't wait to have her up. She also knows all the weird stories from the early days of blogging. So that's going to be fun. And we're trying for one more very special guest. I can't tell you who it is, but I know that you want to see them. And like, if it's who we think it is, it's it's huge. Buy tickets. It's October 2nd. It's at Cobb's Comedy. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for Cobb's. Badonpaperpodcast.com backslash live. Yes. One other piece of podcast housekeeping. Did you know we were on Spotify? You did not. I did. I was looking at us on Spotify earlier. Our description's wrong. We need to fix it. I don't know how to do that. Um, But we're on Spotify. So I just started listening to podcasts on Spotify. I didn't know you could. I'm clearly a little deranged. But um, you can listen to podcasts on Spotify. So come find us. So we are so excited today to have Simon Doonan with us. If you don't know, Simon is the author of many books, including the newly released Drag Herstory, Drag, The Complete Story, and it is the first modern book on drag culture. So today, the former superstar window dresser is also a judge on the Emmy-nominated NBC series Making It and the creative ambassador for Barney's New York. Simon lives in New York City with his partner, the ceramicist and designer Jonathan Adler, and their rescue dog, Fox. Lady. Oh, she's so cute. Why didn't you bring lady. her? Um, she's celebrating privately. She okay. knows I'm here. Okay. She's rooting for me she's and she, she says hi. What kind of dog is Foxy Lady? I have no idea. She's like this sassy little mutt who is very red and like a little fox, hence the name. 
Love oh, that. Cute. Simon, we're so excited you're here. I am screeching with excitement. Thank you for having me. Well, Simon's book is so fantastic, and we want to talk all about that. But maybe before we get into that, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your career trajectory in your own words. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm so old that no, I can you're barely not, remember. Not. Well, I was born the year before the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. So yeah, hello. <laughs> I'm no spring chicken, darling. Um, and, you know, the 1950s, the 1960s, um, growing up then, it was a very different time. No cell phones, no nothing. Um my first job was at 16. I worked in a bottle top factory. Oh. And then I somehow realized this wasn't a great direction. And I clawed my bait back into the sort of education system and went to college. Okay. Um, I worked in retail and I loved retail because I'd done factory work. So for me, retail was like glamorous sure. and fun and zhushy. And then I got into window display and then through a, a little quirk, I met Tommy Purse, who's one of the great American retailers who has a store in LA called Maxfield. And when I was 25, I went there to LA. It was like late seventies and worked for him doing windows, doing other stuff and had a lot of my crazy twenties in LA. <laughs> and, um, then in 1985, I moved to New York and I worked for a little bit at the Costume Institute on one exhibit called Costumes of Royal India when Diana Vreeland was still in charge of the Costume Institute. Do you know who she is? Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, yeah, so she was legendary major. That was really fun. And then at the opening, back then um, in the 80s, you could buy a dessert ticket for $100. So you could go to the Met Ball and pay 100 bucks. To oh go my just, goodness. I know. What? To go to the dessert portion of the evening, which was in the Temple of Dendur, which was sort of almost more fun than sitting in the dinner. Right. But if you were young, which could, I was. Could anyone go? Um, anyone who'd bought a ticket. And I remember now all the, all the people that would go to that dessert portion of the evening, like Miss J um, and models like Janice Dickinson, this one, that one. It was a fun crowd. I went with Suzanne Barch the first time I went. Anyway, at that opening, I met Gene Pressman, who owned Barney's. And he said, Oh, I know you have a reputation for doing funky windows, come and work for me at Barney's. So I guess I'm very obedient. I just <laughs> said, I went home and had a yard sale in LA and then just moved to New York and worked at Barney's since 1985. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. And so when did writing books come into this? Because this is not your first book. No. Well, in my late 40s, and I think that's an important thing because your career just takes all kinds of meandering. If you, you have fun with it and you throw yourself into it, you never know where it's going to go. So I always used the side of my brain that was visual. And then in the late, I think 1998, a publisher said to me, oh, you really should do a book of all your windows. So I put them all together. And he said, you should write an introduction. So I wrote an introduction. He said, you're a very funny, hilarious writer and you should write more. So it was sort of a complete serendipitous thing. And the book become kind of text driven from that book, Confessions of a Window Dresser. I got my column at the New York Observer back then in the 90s when Candice Bushnell was doing her column, Sex in the City, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's how I got into writing. It was a serendipitous thing. And I continued to work at Barney's. So I would get up early, write my column and then zip off to work. And um, then I did more books. And I 
writing was great for me. I loved it. And it made me appreciate my day job mm -hmm. very much so. Like I thought, what a great job I have here at Barney's. I thought that already, but something about sitting alone in a room pounding away on a laptop, you know, in isolation made me appreciate the sort of gregariousness of my job in display and advertising, all the fun things I was involved in at Barney's and still mm -hmm. am. Did you take breaks from Barney's as you wrote these books or was it always no. just like on, at night and on the weekends? I'm not, I don't have a private income, darling. I'm <laughs> in the, <laughs> mommy needs a job to pay the rent. Yes. Um, so absolutely not. I used to just get up very early and write and then go, I had to be at work 8.39. So yeah. I was always, I had a great work ethic. Mm -hmm. My mom was a working class Irish broad. Do we still use that word? <laughs> sure. She um, we left, do now. <laughs> she left school at thirteen. You know, she was a pork butcher, very young age, and she had an incredible work ethic. And and my dad always worked hard too. So I got that from her. I always liked working. I liked to have be able to pay my bills, and having a job was very important to me because I had that working class kind of ethos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait. So talk to us a little bit about this book because I think this is very different from what else you have written. And it's, I kind of liken it almost to like a hybrid of being a coffee table book, but kind of a textbook in a way. Like it is packed with history and there's so much information. So what made you decide to want to write this? Well, I did a book on soccer players for a publisher in London, Lawrence King, and yeah. they work with Chronicle Books in San Francisco. And um, one of my interests is soccer and the culture around soccer, especially in Europe, in England and Spain and Italy. Um, the soccer players, Ronaldo, Messi, do you know any of these names? I mean, Cristiano I know them by Ronaldo. their looks, but I don't follow soccer well, well enough to just, know their as players. <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo has more Instagram followers than anyone on the planet. Does he really? Yes. Wow. I so, thought it was one of the Kardashians that had the No, I think the most. he beat Cristiano Ronaldo without an H, Cristiano. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the culture around soccer players, I wrote a book about that. And when I was, we were just finishing and they said to me, you know, we apparently there is no history of drag. There's books about drag in the theater, drag here, drag there, drag in movies, but not a specific history of drag. Would you like to do it? And I thought that'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. So it was just another serendipitous thing. And I think if I do have a talent, it's knowing when to jump and say, oh, yeah, great. Yeah. And, you know, just say yes and get on with it. And um, so I know I, I'm very familiar with drag. You know, I have pictures of me 10 years old in drag that my mother took. <laughs> yeah. You know, in England, drag was always part of TV comedy, um, Monty Python, all that stuff. So I was very used to the idea of drag and I knew something about it historically, but you know, it took me three years to do this book. I had to do oh, a wow. lot of research. That was my next question because it's just so, I would imagine it was so, so much work. Oh my God. It was a lot of work and I had to read a tremendous amount and just to get everything in the right order yeah. if it's a history. But my goal was to, I'm not an academic. Um, and so I'm, I'm a sort of a, student of culture. I like, I'm interested in the culture, pop culture, history. And so I wanted it to be accessible. So someone like you guys would read it and not find it too highbrow or oblique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, um, so that was my goal, making history fun and exciting. I love history, but I know young people kind of maybe, do you like history? I like history. Mm. I think yeah. we're both nerds though. Yeah. You're we both read to a lot. 
Yeah, we read a lot. <laughs> um, so how do you balance reading a lot with your phone? Because I've noticed like, I think reading has gone into rapid decline because people are looking at their phones. So how do you juxtapose that? I think reading is such a great break from my phone. I yeah, think it's a nice counterbalance. We've gotten to the point where I'm trying to stay away from my phone more than I'm trying to be on it. Like it's a it's a blessing and a curse. So, you yeah. know, reading is such a great way to get sucked into something and not be on your phone. Because I find myself, even if I watch television, that I have the phone in my hand and I'm just scrolling through Instagram too. Like I can't do mm-hmm. one thing unless I shut my mind off and I'm, you know, reading and I'm fully invested and have to pay attention. Yeah. And we'll have- yeah. I think I'm the last person on earth who doesn't do that. I'm not patting myself on the back. I mean, it's purely an age thing. I just like on the train here from. Manhattan, it's not an age thing though. Cause my dad does it and he's older than you. He's just like, lo- he loves the phone and like loves and he's watching TV. He's got the phone in his hand scrolling. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. I'm probably older than your dad. How old is he? I think he's. 67. Aha. Yeah. Same age. Yeah. I have to, like, I'm like, how old is my dad? I said that. And I was like, I don't know his exact age. I would imagine that reading is a good sanctuary from phone addiction. If you can get there, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, um, I would imagine it is. I mean, I'm so out of it. I leave the house without my phone on the train here from Manhattan. I thought, oh, I should go look at that Instagram I posted three days ago and see if anyone (laughs) liked it. Like, so I'm really not, I don't have that, that, um, addiction. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it actually in many ways can make you irrelevant today, especially if you're in, um, in a job situation, it can be problematic if you're not engaged with your phone. So it must be a very push me, pull you thing for you young people discuss. Yeah. Well, we're interviewing you, but yeah, I think it's really (laughs) exhausting. I think it's very exhausting. Like I have to be on my phone a lot because I have like Instagram is one of the key ways I make a living because of the whole influencer thing. And it just, you just feel very drained. Like you go in and you have to look at your comments, your likes. Now there's the, the messages in the DM folder. And it's, it's just a lot. Like it feels very urgent and a little bit invasive at times. Well, I, people say to me, how did you write this book? Well, because I'm not doing that, yeah. you know, like it really does to write a book like this took three years and it took three years of working on it nonstop every day. When you're not reading, you're rewriting. Mm-hmm. When you're not rewriting, you're going over picture selections and rewriting captions. Like it's a huge, um, that might be another, another, um, therapeutic way for people to get off their phones a little bit to, um, undo a book because you don't have a choice if Seriously. it's something like that. Are you writing mostly by hand and then, or are you writing into a computer? I write with a quill pen. <laughs> and I like to wear well, a big powdered wig. computer is still a wig. screen. That's why I asked. Oh, no, no. I write on my computer, but okay. I don't pay any attention to anything else going okay. on on that. Yeah. Well, wait. So the book goes back pretty far into, I think, the 1800s and even before. <gasps> Darling, but, it goes back to uh, 6000 BC. Well, right. But with some of the more contemporary sources, did you actually get to meet and interview these people? There's two major interviews in there. One is with an art drag conceptual person who's called Vaginal Davis. Mm-hmm. And the other interview is with this fabulous guy who was – um, a model impersonator called Billy Beyond. And he used to, he's very slender, very pretty. And he used to model in the 80s 
alongside Naomi, Christy Turlington, blah, 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 blah. And he would get booked and he did several seasons and everyone would say, well, look, there's Billy. Um, and I interviewed Billy about that period. He refers to himself as not a drag queen, but a model impersonator. Okay. And there's a that. picture of him in the book, modeling. Um, and I interviewed him because it's a little sort of snapshot of that time in yeah. the 80s. Um, but most of it was reading, reading, reading. Um, you know, on that's, I mean, my God, the internet, you can research anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm really curious, how do you feel about drag becoming more mainstream in, in the past, you know, 10 years since RuPaul's Drag Race came out and, you know, maybe even in the last three or four since it's become super popular and kind of, I feel like, tipped over into, you know, not just like this niche thing, but really into the mainstream? Well, I'm not an elitist. I like it when things become popular. Yeah. I think that's why I like sports. You know, it's something very democratic. Um, but the history of it, the recent history is in the 90s, drag was sort of losing its mojo because mm -hmm. it was propelled forward by its marginal status. Mm -hmm. So that's what drove it in Wigstock and all the 80s and the Pyramid Club and all that stuff. And then in the 90s, people were saying, well, what's going to, now that it's becoming something, you might go to a corporate retreat and they'd have a drag queen or a bar mitzvah mm -hmm. as a drag queen. And people in the 90s were saying, what will propel it forward when it loses its marginal status? So right now, there's so many things propelling it forward. It's incredible. And that none of which we could have anticipated back in the 90s. So there's this incredible gender revolution that we're in the middle of that no one really saw coming. Sure. You know, on the gender neutral movement, the, mm -hmm. you know, the entire... So the entire landscape of gender is being re-examined in a way that's producing enormous amount of creativity, etc. Very important. And then there's RuPaul's Drag Race. RuPaul, um, his contribution to the culture is sort of immeasurable. Um, the way he and the people at World of Wonder executed this show, it's sort of really an astonishing um, enterprise because it works on so many different levels. Um, RuPaul's Drag Race. So that's propelling it forward. And then I think um, politics, the Trump bump, you know, like look at all the drag that's coming out of the reaction to Donald Trump's election. Meryl Streep dragging up, like Melissa McCarthy dragging up as Sean Spicer. Um, many drag queens now identify as activists as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this very porous between activism and drag. And so there's all these new things that no one really saw coming that are now propelling drag into this new era. And, you know, drag queens now can make a good living. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's also propelling it forward. And I see that as a very positive thing, you know. Yeah. It's easy to romanticize people when they have no money and they're scrabbling together a living and blah, blah, blah. But the fact that Violet Chotsky, mm -hmm. Sasha Velour, Shangela... These drag queens are making good money, being treated well, booked for important stuff. Um, that's great. I don't have the, the culture that we live in now is so fragmented and so vast, the landscape. I don't think there's any danger of people becoming selling out. How yeah. on earth would you sell out? You know, what would you have to do in this day and age to sell out, quote unquote? So I'm very happy that they're making a good living. I used to live with a drag queen in the 70s. You know, it was back then, it was hard to throw together a living and blah 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 so um oh the other thing that's propelling it forward what's that the new genre of drag which is very much about artistry and meticulousness that is there's no precedent for that 
Like if you look at kimchi and these look queens, Ryan Burke, the what they do on their face and on their body is like... Oh, the makeup artistry is just unbelievable. It's incredible. Like I am quite good at drawing. I couldn't do that on a flat piece of paper, never mind my own (laughs) face. Like, uh, you know, it's astonishing. And I feel that 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 new look queen ideology, whatever you want to call it, is um, propelling drag forward, making drag dynamic and interesting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite drag queen? I tend to be, I try to be very um, Swiss yeah. about <laughs> drag queens. On RuPaul's Drag Race, I think I tend to, I, I tend to focus on the people who are struggling, like okay. Vixen. You like an underdog. Um, not because I want them to be an underdog. I just, their vulnerability, which RuPaul is very good at exposing, makes them very compelling and interesting. And yeah. Who do you think was like robbed who didn't win their their season but should have? Um, I kind of stay out of those battles. Sorry. Oh, so you <laughs> like who the, do you think? Uh, well, I don't know, but you I thought because you like the underdog, you might have some thoughts. Well, I don't, you know, look at um Miss Vanjie. Um, I don't think she's won yet. Has she won? She did one once. See, I don't even yeah. know. Now that there's all stars, it's hard to keep up. Yeah. Um they they make a huge impression on me and I almost don't care whether they won mm-hmm. or not. Like Miss Vanjie, her, the impression she made on me has nothing to do with whether she won or not. So I can't even remember yeah. if she did. But like, so it's the ones who have some um, kind of magnetic, crazy, interesting, unconventional approach that make a big impression on me. So currently... Where would you say is the best place to watch drag, to go to a great drag show in New York? I think, well, obviously, Suzanne Barch has the best events, and she has many, and you can see them all on our website. She's a very old friend of mine. We've known each other since the 80s, and we just did another event together that she organized with the CFDA called the Love Ball. Oh. Love Ball 3. It was great. Oh, and um fun. Billy from Pose was the master of ceremonies. Oh, how it was fun. a fantastic event and raised a lot of money. And we did those kinds of things back in the eighties during the AIDS epidemic because mm-hmm. all of our friends were getting sick and dying and we felt we had to do something. And Suzanne, you know, she looked at those voguing balls and, and saw a great framework for doing a charity event and did these two events in the eighties called the Love Ball to raise money. And then recently Love Ball three. How fun. So Suzanne Barch, follow Miss Barch and you'll find great drag. Okay, great. Okay. But she only does special events. Is there like a club or something that's more regular that you would say is like, this is, this is it? Well, I know that there are many clubs in Brooklyn where drag people perform and I should know their names, um, but I don't. (laughs) That's okay. Because um, I allude to them and there are many drag queens coming out of that world in Brooklyn. Obviously, I think Edie Oddly and... um, you know, by a whole bunch of drag queens out of the Brooklyn scene. And they'll all come back to me when I'm riding on the subway. That's but, fine, um, yeah. Yeah, Brooklyn is full of dynamic, chic little nightclubs where you can see drag. <laughs> we need to get out more. I know. I would yeah. say my favorite drag... I don't have a favorite drag show in New York, but I love... Have you ever been to Jacques in Boston? Um, no. It's I, such a weird one. I'd probably have a heart attack if I went out after 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> 
I've heard of Jacques, though. It's fun. It's like this really divey one in the middle of a really nice neighborhood. And so you, you kind of walk up and it's all these condos. and You're like, I don't think I'm in the right place. Um, and it's a weird show, which I think is fun. Like I like the more comedic queens who are, you know, more like dynamic on stage, maybe not like the best at the face or you know the best who's your favorite i mean i like katya right definitely and what about bianca del rio sure um but yeah i like i like like a comedic queen well i differentiated drag a glamour drag and Mm -hmm. comedy drag yeah because historically there's been kind of a separation they're not not a firewall between them like rupaul for example I think is spectacularly successful because she combined both. Right. But historically, there was a there was a difference. Like um, back in the day, a lot of straight men did comedy drag, and it was oh, kind interesting. of misogynist and making fun of women and oh. blah blah blah, and you know a lot. And then women make fun of men when they do drag. Mm-hmm. That's the sure. whole po- that's the whole point of it. Like drag kings, that's what they're mm-hmm. doing. They're satirizing aspects of male behavior um and it's a very successful way of diffusing anxiety about sex and gender and blah 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 comedy drag plays a sort of big role i think in our psyche yeah yeah we're gonna need to find a fun night out in brooklyn go to one of the we absolutely drag do. clubs here okay so we want to take a little break to talk about one of our sponsors it's time to talk about lola So we've talked about this advertiser so many times, so I figured it would be fun to just tell you a little story. So I used to work at Lola, and I tell people that I took that job out of sheer rage as a consumer. So I was 28 when I started there, I think, maybe 29. And at that point, I'd had my period for 14 years. And Honestly, I had never thought about what the ingredients were in a tampon. So like I'm smart enough to know that tampons don't grow on trees, but it just never occurred to me that it was something with ingredients. Yeah. I never thought about it. Never. So what's really frustrating is that the FDA doesn't require tampon brands to disclose a complete list of ingredients, so they don't. Major brands use a mix of synthetic ingredients in their products, which includes rayon and polyester. Like You don't want to use that. Um, Their feminine care products may also be treated with harsh chemical cleansing agents, fragrances, and dyes. And what's kind of more upsetting is that the average woman will use 10,000 tampons in her lifetime. So personally, I want to know what's in mine, and I want to make sure that I'm making smart choices about ingredients. I would never use a beauty product or eat food that won't tell me the ingredients on the label. So why should it be okay with tampons? Imagine how shady that would be if you picked up a box of food and it was just like, eh, it's just the shrug emoji on the side. They're like, I don't know, (laughs) not your business. So I guess that's a long way of telling you why Lola is so innovative. So Lola is a women's health brand that offers tampons, pads, and liners made with 100% organic cotton. And they tell you those ingredients in big letters right on the side of the box. And Lola's products come in a customizable subscription. I think this is my favorite thing because I used to have like a box of supers, a box of lights, a box of mediums. So you can get your products delivered right to your door. Um, You don't have to worry about forgetting. But I love that it's so customizable. So you can get eight supers, five regulars, whatever whatever your mix is, you can get that. So you 
get what you need, and you're not sitting with tons and tons of product. I also love that it's female-founded. These women understand periods because they have periods. So they made a great product, and they took all the hassle out of the shopping experience. And personally, I think everyone should try these products. And as always, we have an offer for you. So you can take 40% off all subscriptions. Visit mylola.com and enter code BOP at checkout. So again, that's 40% off all subscriptions. Visit mylola.com and enter code BOP at checkout. And now back to the interview. We wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about career because we got, we kind of have like buckets of questions that we got. We pulled our listeners for questions for you. Um, And we got many. Many. Wow. We got, we also just got a lot of like, I love him. Congratulations. Mm. So people are really excited to hear from you. Oh, that's so sweet. But what would you say your, your biggest career highlight has been so far? Um, well, I've been very lucky. I mean, yeah, I've got a great work ethic. I work very hard. Um, but I've been lucky, you know, just coming to LA at that point back yeah. then and then getting my job at Barney's. But I mean, I always somehow instinctively knew when to say yes and throw myself into something. And I stayed for a long time. You know, I worked with Maxfield for eight years and then I worked at Barney's for over 30. So yeah, but, 30 years. Wow. Um, So many highlights. I mean, I was very lucky at Barney's because we carried all these designers before anybody else had them. Mm-hmm. Hate to sound snotty, but Prada, you know, Romeo Gili, Armani, all of these people. Barney's was their go-to platform to that's incredible to launch themselves. So we, I met all these people, Alaya, you know, um, so Manola Blahnik, um, da 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 da, names, names, names. So I was very lucky to work with all these great people. And then career highlight, in a way, it was like when. President Obama got elected. I got a call asking if I would help with the decor of their first holiday at the White House. Oh my goodness. And so wow. I, it was a long project, lots of meetings back and forth to Washington. It took many months just to figure out what we would do. There was a big team there. It wasn't just me. And then we had a big team of volunteers. And then we installed the holiday decor the first year, me and uh, a fabulous florist. Oh God, my brain. Um, anyway, it'll come to me before okay. the end of the podcast. You just interject anytime when you think of it. Yes. Kimberly Merlin. There we go. Kimberly Merlin. And we did this fantastically chic holiday installation for the first year in the Obamas. And I thought, wow, I was born in a little town, worked in a bottle top factory. Look, I'm in the, got my green card, got my citizenship. Now I'm in the White House. So that was fun. So wait, that was 2009 then? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to look this up. I want to see oh what, gosh, what it looks too. like, the finished product. Well, they don't tend to publicize who does it mm-hmm. um, because it's supposed to be something you do. So you might find there aren't a huge number of great pictures online. Oh, it's wow. like, um, you know, there's obviously pictures of Mr. and Mrs. Obama in their blue room. Mm-hmm. The blue room tree was something that I'm very proud of. We took old decorations that were in the warehouse at the White House. And we had people decoupage them in different community centers all over America. And so America participated in the creation of the Blue Room Tree. Oh, Um, how amazing. Yeah, it was great. Now, do you have a favorite window display that you've done? Well, um, the thing about window display is it it changes very ephemeral, always changing, like literally hundreds of thousands of windows, even in the 70s and 80s, the windows changing every week at Maxfield. And I was there for eight years. Mm-hmm. You do the math. Oh my so gosh. 
Like it's very ephemeral. So you don't tend to get fixated on things. You know, you're not like, even the holiday windows. Well, I have, I guess my favorite holiday windows of all time, Barney's, was the last ones I did, which were the foodie holiday. Oh. Um, and, you know, over the years, we did a Warhol holiday. We did a green holiday. It was everything recycled. Like there was so many fun things. But the last one, I think I'm proud of it for many different reasons. I noticed that all our customers are obsessed with food. They're obsessed with celebrity chefs. This is back five, six years ago, maybe mm-hmm. longer, 10 years ago. Um, so they're obsessed with celebrity chefs. I'm not, I wasn't very interested in it. I wasn't a foodie, but I saw that people were, and I thought we should do a foodie holiday because people are interested in that. Yeah. And that's how I always approached the windows. It wasn't me, me, me. Mm -hmm. It was like, what are people talking about? The, The year we did Warhol as our holiday theme, have an Andy War holiday. I love that. I love Warhol. With the year we did share, the holidays are for sharing. Oh, Get it? That. Oh my gosh. I love a pun. I love These a pun. are great. I also love share. Yeah. Well, and- it was the year that she announced she would be retiring. Okay. She subsequently didn't. Yeah, retire. she's retired a few times. Yes. <laughs> I love her. So I'm always looking at the culture thinking, what are people talking about? What are resonating with people? Not what am I mm-hmm. interested in? So the foodie holiday, <clears throat> the foodie holiday was really fun. There was a big window that was a food fight with all the most famous chefs, um, you know, Bobby Flay and Emeril Lagasse and all those guys all throwing food at each other and it was all splattered on the window. Um it was insane and really fun. And all of the chefs, the whole community, Marcus Samuelson, everybody showed up for that unveiling. Mm-hmm. And so I'm proud of that. That was my swan song. That's so fun. That's really cool. Wait, do you have any inside scoop as to this holiday, what the windows are going to look like? No, I Are you don't. working on them? No, I haven't been involved in the windows for quite some time, for like... Okay. At least five years. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when I when I went from creative director to creative ambassador at large. Yeah. Um, the new creative director at Barney's, Matt Mazuza, has been doing the windows for a few years now. He does an incredible job. He's um he approaches it from a very art kind of mm-hmm. point of view, and I have no idea what he's doing this year. And I don't talk to him about it because I like to be, I like to be a spectator and cheer loudly. He's great. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm curious, you kind of touched on this, but I, I want to know how you get inspired. Like, it sounds like you're listening to people and, and kind of trying to get a pulse on culture. But like, where do you look for inspiration? I never had a problem coming up with ideas, um, you know, because I think the rhythm of window display, I always had like a million ideas in my back pocket, because you have to because yeah. the window nights coming, coming, you have to have, you know, if you work in, in a big store, you have to have all your stuff you know, go ready to go ahead of time. So you get into this rhythm of constantly looking for ideas. When I had a weekly column at the Observer, I was constantly harvesting ideas, keeping lists of them, keeping files of them. So it's not brain, it's not mystical. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to accumulate a load of ideas and you get good at flagging something. Oh, that would make a great column. Mm-hmm. Someone, something, somebody says something offhand and you think, Oh my God, there's a column there or there's a window there. And you just get into a rhythm of doing it. It's not mystical. Mm-hmm. It's just about having some dumb file on your landing page where you keep notes. It's not mystical, but I think it's interesting how you think about it, that it's not about you, where I think a lot of people do think about it in terms of their lens interpreting 
Well, you know. how you execute it is an expression sure. of you. But in terms of window display is not art. Yeah. You know, it's marketing, it's installation, it's communication. So you have to be communicating ideas that resonate with people. You you can't start blathering on about something that no one cares about anymore. It, so it's a combination of finding some idea that's resonating with people currently. And then obviously it has to have your your imprimatur on it. Mm -hmm. I think that's such great advice for like any creative, because I think a lot of times people just get so bogged down in what's in their, in their head and this and that. And you really have to look, take a more external approach. Well, especially if you're in the business of communicating, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, uh, you have to keep your eye on the culture. Like I, was watching that show Euphoria, mm -hmm. and I looked oh, I at. I haven't the, watched that yet. I've heard it's fantastic. Either. Oh my god! What are you waiting for? I don't know. We're I'm reading. reading. We're reading too much. Right. <laughs> you could do both: reading, watching. No, that won't work. Candy Crush, reading, watching. <laughs> um, oh my well, god! Becca scorns me because I love Candy Crush. It's so embarrassing. Do you play Candy Crush? No. <laughs> I was excited because I thought maybe you did. I you thought, really thought you had I a thought buddy maybe there. we were going to bond over our I love of Candy on you. Crush. <laughs> everyone is against me. I will shut no, up. No, <laughs> everyone's playing Candy Crush. I got into it on a flight where I was stuck on the plane for like two hours on the ground and there was no internet service. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I had randomly downloaded it. And then I just... That was a couple years ago. and I mean, it's designed to be addictive, but the funny part is just that you came to it like five years after yeah, everyone Yeah, way later else, than everyone and else. stayed so in it. Yeah, I, I play it every day, usually. Anyway. <laughs> Simon is like people, shaking. I have so many friends that sit and watch telly and play Candy Crush. Yeah. You know, you're in the majority. Sorry. I'm the weirdo that actually just sits and stares at the screen. But when I'm staring <laughs> at Euphoria, I saw all their eye makeup and I thought, that's going to have a huge impact. So you, you know, you get into used to seeing things uh, and figuring out what's going to impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You must have heard about the way the styling in it and the maquillage. I feel like the thing that I heard most about Euphoria is how many dicks there are. Oh, yeah. It's it's um, very sexual and a lot of drugs. Yeah. I need to watch this. I've heard a lot from a lot of different people. Like, it's one of those things that, like, I feel like I have to now watch it to be culturally relevant. You do. And also, if you're visual people, and I suspect you both are, it's a visually, beautifully art-directed mm -hmm. show. That okay. is some serious art direction there. You want to know what art direction is? Watch that, that show. Okay. Well, I want to switch gears a little into your style. We got so many questions about... Wait, where is your Superman shirt from? I love that. This is from the Target Boys department. Oh. <laughs> you are my style icon, Simon. I love it. It's an extra large boys, and I wear a lot of Target t-shirts. Because okay. I am, you know, to put it bluntly, to put it bluntly, I'm small. I'm freakishly <laughs> undersized. And uh, now I'm, I'm petite. Yeah. So I don't, regular t-shirts look terrible on me. I've always worn boys clothes, vintage clothes. That fits you as perfectly. Well as, yeah, hello. It looks great. I bought like 10 of them. Oh my God. All Superman? Well, S. Oh yeah. Oh, it's Bonjour. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, so yeah, I love, boys clothes also tend to be more playful. I like playful clothes. I mm -hmm. like, I don't wear solids. I don't like the idea of basics or essentials. I like things that... Where you get your money's worth. Well, in my closet, everything kind of counts. I don't want any filler. I don't want any basics, essentials. I, I know that people do. I'm not stupid. That doesn't work for most people. Most people need basics, essentials, stuff like that. 
I have just always wanted to be quirky. Well, how did you develop your sense of style? I don't imagine you were on the factory floor and you're like quirky pattern shirts. Maybe you were. Well, the thing is, I am a teenager. I was I was a teenager in the sixties, mm-hmm. which saw an explosion of flamboyance in clothes because in the fifties everyone was wearing moth-eaten, threadbare clothes. No one had any money after the war, and then the sixties came along the swinging 60s, and it was like suddenly the world went into color, paisleys and psychedelic colors. And, you know, it was a very flamboyant period. So that made a huge impression on me. And that seemed like the opposite of working in a factory. So you thought, I might work in a factory, but I can Mm -hmm. Friday night get dressed up. And then glam rock, all these incredible cultural shifts came along during my my growth, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, like, uh, the, the hippie thing, the swinging sixties, the hippie thing, um, was also very androgynous glam rock, which was satin. That jacket I have is like some nod to, you know, seventies glam rock, Bowie, Roxy music. Mm -hmm. Then we went into this nostalgic period where everybody dressed very 1920s and then it went into punk. Mm-hmm. I was lived off the King's Road during the punk revolution. I had all those plaid bondage clothes. Oh, So I was very into, I was always very into what was the new mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And then when the new romantic thing came along, remember that? Everybody dressing like pirates and Boy George and mm-hmm. Spandau Ballet. I'm in that Kim Carnes video with all the people dressed up in that new romantic clothes. You are? Oh, we're going to have to look that up. I have and a I'm, lot of research to do after mm-hmm. this. I'm wearing my pirate outfit. So I was always very into outre mm-hmm. things, new things. And back then, if something was super trendy and new, like the punk clothing from Vivian Westwood or, um, you know, glam rock stuff, it wasn't that expensive. It was mm-hmm. meant so that people, young people could afford it. It's not like now with thousands and thousands right. and thousands of dollars for something that's trendy. Back then, trendy clothes tended to be affordable because that's who was going to buy them. Right. Yeah. So I went through all those periods. And um, I think where I ended up is sort of a mashup of those eras that I went through that were the kind of the first street style trends. If you think about hippie, glam rock, punk, um, new wave in the early 80s, those were street style trends that were young people were buying affordable clothes and that were new and felt directional. Well, somebody asked, what advice do you have for somebody who hasn't figured out their personal style and doesn't know where to start? What I would do if I hadn't figured out my personal style, I would look at pictures, create a Pinterest. Sure. Isn't it called Pinterest? That's called Pinterest. Yeah. Um, Create a Pinterest board. I'm kidding. Um, And well, who do you like? Who do you respond to? Who do you resonate with? Forget about what other people think. Mm-hmm. To put that way out of, do not be looking for external validation. Just think about what you like. What do I like? What do I respond to? Do I like um, goth? Or do I like severe things like Rick Owens mm-hmm. or stuff like that? Or do I like super flowery, hippie um stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know, so like, what do you resonate with and make your, or maybe you're very conventional, you know, maybe you, you like really straight conventional stuff, make your Pinterest board and then stick to it and it, but then evolve it Mm -hmm. and don't worry about what other people think. That's the key. I never care what other people think. When people say to me, what are you wearing? I'm like, why do you care what I'm wearing? (laughs) 
to some, no, to some so, thing. Well, that's what I asked you. No, no, I don't mean in that context. Yeah. I mean, oh, we're going to a blah, blah, blah event. What are you going to wear? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'll surprise each other. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, that insecurity that, and I, I thought I would write books. Like I wrote a book called Eccentric Glamour. I wrote a book called Wacky Chicks. I thought I would write these books and liberate people from their self-critical masochistic impulses and i failed completely because the internet came along and made people more anxious and self-critical i would say people are more anxious and self-critical about their appearance than they ever were and i think it's that terrible thumbs up thumbs down thing and you get you start mm -hmm. monitoring people's feedback because mm -hmm. it's sort of part of your job but so it's hard to dodge it completely yeah. but i think i feel blessed because i never really worried about what other people yeah. think well what do you think well, a question we skipped, but I'm curious on your thoughts now is like, how do you think social media has changed fashion and like the rise of influencers? Like there's not really like the same seasonal schedule for buying that there used to be like it's early September and I'm like, oh, I don't want to think about buying boots. It's like I'll buy it when I want to wear them. Yeah. Well, there's something very rational about that. There is. Um, I think social media has completely disrupted everything, most especially fashion and style and good. Things Great. should be disrupted. Things should be dynamic. Things should be always changing. The landscape of fashion used to be tiny. It was kind of exclusive. Yeah. Now it's not exclusive at all. It's very inclusive. You know, so that I love that. I think that's a very positive thing. I don't have anything negative to say about about the new revolution in mm -hmm. communication, retailing, social media, except the thing about people becoming too self-critical you shouldn't mm -hmm. if other people go like that you should think good i wound them up you know, <laughs> like a thumbs down yeah. yeah um so i do that's the my one reservation is i see the anxiety level that people experience from people going at them on certain why care mm -hmm. who cares yeah who cares like I think it'll be interesting to see if Instagram ends up hiding likes after all like they keep talking about that i know in canada you can't see them but I would kind of like that just to freely post what I want and not worry about how many likes the post is going to get. Except I, I always look to see how many likes I've got on an Instagram post, but I don't care from an ego, uh, emotional point of view. If yeah. I get none because I posted something, I thought, oh, well, this won't get any likes, but I like the picture. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't care. I yeah. think it's the bit where you have to decide what you're going to care about. And for you guys, it must be hard because it's so enmeshed with your professional life. It is. It's 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 hard, um, and it's it's it can be hard to like you feel like you get your worth from those numbers. Like, well, also for you, it's about you as a person. It's mm -hmm. not about like necessarily your aesthetic projected outward. It's like yeah. your clothes <laughs> on your body on your face. Yeah. So when people are saying critical things, it's like it's mm -hmm. hard to separate it. Yeah. Do you have a good therapist? I don't. Maybe I'll get one. You should talk to me. Okay. <laughs> oh, we're gonna take this this from podcast guest to I'm now his therapy patient. I like this. Yeah. Well, I I do will say this about myself. I have always championed unconventional dressing and not caring what other people think. That's been a light motif in my life, personally, in my work, in my windows, in my books. Is like, hey. Everything is self-expression. Mm -hmm. You're not doing it to win a beauty contest. Um, you know, you should say, oh, well, if a lot of people are having some 
issue with something you're wearing, it probably means you you did something a little more unconventional because people tend to mm-hmm. maybe react adversely to that. And you think, good, doing my job. I'm mixing it up a bit. I'm not just sticking with some median, uh, you know, representation of myself. Yeah. Wait, I have a question for you about your own style. What are some of your favorite purchases that you've ever made, like investments or less expensive stuff? Um, let's see. I actually don't have a ton of clothes. I know you don't believe me. Your closet is so much bigger than mine because I don't have any basic, I don't have any filler. Yeah. You know, there's just everything in there is like some demented, you know, vintage cowboy shirts or a Hedy Slimane, something that I love and have hung on to. So everything in there counts. And I guess I don't buy as much as I might because I have size issues. Mm -hmm. If it fits, I'll tend to buy it. So let's see, your question was... Favorite all-time purchases. Favorite all-time purchases. I bought this velvet jackets from Tom Brown many years ago, and they were custom. So they weren't cheap. And I still wear them, and I wear them on the set of Making It, and they're just great. They like cover up a multitude of sins. The pockets are all rotten on the inside. I've torn them all. (laughs) The lining's torn. Um, But I'm very fond of those jackets. Um, let's see. Alessandro Michele Gucci. What he's done at Gucci. I have lots of his. I'm wearing his little slip-ons with the uh, cat. Oh, the I saw those as you walked in. You're like, should I take my shoes off? I'm like, well, they're Gucci. I think you can probably keep. I mean, shoes have germs no matter where, but like, they're beautiful. <laughs> they're great. Well, they're ridiculous, but they're also fabulous. So yeah. I like things that cross that line. Um, and he's very good at that. Mm-hmm. He walks that line. Let's see. What else have I got? I, as a guy, one tends to not consume clothes the way girls do. And I don't mean that in a gender phobic kind of way. I mean, it's just the way women approach fashion like I like to get things that are fitting with my look and I think girls might tend to be always on a sort of vision quest to try new things that make them feel a certain way and they dream it's a lot more of an ima- a process of imagination and dreaming and you know trans women might feel that way too I'm sure they do I know drag queens do mm-hmm. it's interesting I used to work in the beauty industry and men's fragrances versus women's fragrances are so different like the top men's fragrance like would do so much volume because men bought it they had their fragrance they used it up they went and bought another one women on the other hand would buy like five or six different ones and it was like much more like fluid and there was you know it was a lot easier to crack the women's bestsellers than it was the men's because the men's it was like they wore their Aqua de Joe, they wore their Lacoste Essential, like they didn't really want to deviate. Yeah, I'm always in a, in our office building, Barney's, I'll get in the lift and we have a lot of other companies in the building and men, straight men will say, oh, I uh, wish I could get away with that. I'm like, honey, I hate to break it to you. No one cares. Yeah. You can set fire <laughs> yeah. to yourself in this town. And yeah. like, you know, that men feel that they're um, in danger of making a faux pas. Mm-hmm. In fact, for years at Barney's, we used the tagline, get it right for men, because that seemed to be in our focus groups, a preoccupation with men, get it right. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's interesting how men and women tend, we're generalizing here, obviously, people generalizing about gender. In general, there's this creative journey that women are on with their clothes that can be a source of anxiety, but also a source of 
of creative satisfaction and self-expression and things that are very good. So it's time for another ad. Let's talk about another sponsor. So today's episode is also sponsored by Modern Fertility. Modern Fertility is the first comprehensive fertility test that you can take at home. And what's wild is that for so many women, they actually don't have any information about their fertility until they're trying to conceive. So usually you have to have been actively trying to have a child for one year before you're actually eligible for fertility testing at the doctor's office. And that's crazy. So what I think is cool about modern fertility is that it's an easy test that you can take at home. It costs $159, which is way less than testing at a doctor's office, but it's the same information. And you get your results in 10 days with a personalized report that tells you your egg count, looks at your hormone levels, and tells you any other reproductive red flags. You can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to help you interpret your results so you don't have to rely on Dr. Google, who always thinks you have cancer. And personally, (laughs) as someone who is 33 and is very on the fence about having children, I just want to know my options. I don't want to be surprised. So I think this company is incredibly cool and is putting information into the hands of women, whether they're thinking about starting to try to conceive or they just want to know more about their bodies and their options in the future. So right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com backslash BOP. So again, that's $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com backslash BOP. Last time, modernfertility.com slash BOP. So let's get back to the interview. To switch gears again, one category where we got so many questions for you was about your relationship with Jonathan. Really? Wait, yes. did Grace tell you her creepy story yet? I did. I, I told, When he got here, I told him. So for the listeners, I met Simon like a few years ago at an influencer event at his house on Shelter Island. And I was like kind of introverting, hanging away from everyone, like because it was there were so many people there and it was a little overwhelming. So I went inside and I was like kind of swinging in one of your swing chairs and you came over and I was like, oh shit, that's Simon. <laughs> Get out of that swing chair. <laughs> and instead he was like, oh, he's like, do you want your, t- your picture taken? And he was my Instagram husband Aww. that day. Yeah, you were so nice. But that was a that was a Jonathan Adler event. Yeah, it was for Clinique, and Jonathan Adler did a um, collaboration where Jonathan designed all the packaging, and um, Clinique invited like thirty a lot of influencers. We took over their house for the day. Um, The influencer event was at our house in Shelter Island. It was really fun. I mean, Jonathan does a lot of collaborations. Yeah. And that was my first big exposure to influencers. So I loved meeting you guys. It was fun. It was a a new phenomenon for me that um, I enjoyed encountering. Well, wait, do you have a a public-facing story that you want to share about how you and Jonathan met and... And got together? Sure. Um, Back in the mid-90s, a friend of mine said, oh, you should go on a date with Jonathan Adler. And I said, oh, he makes that pottery we sell at Barney's, the stripy pots. And he said, he's fun. You'd like him. So we had a little date. And I was 42 and he was 28. Mm -hmm. And I was wearing my little business suit because we all wore suits back then. Um, All the men at Barney's. And he was rollerblading to the date. (laughs) And he was covered in clay and he had a backpack, an Invicta backpack, and he was covered in clay. And um, uh, he was very chatty and fun. And he recalls that I didn't ask him any questions and that he <laughs> asked me questions and I, he, and I answered them. Like he'd say, do you have any relatives, do you have any siblings? And I'd say, yeah. 
<laughs> and I can believe that I was a bit of a dud because British people, it's a weird different thing where okay. it's not that we're not interested. It's like conversations tend to evolve. Like I'd say, oh, you watch it on those rollerblades, you'll get hit by a car. You know, that would be the beginning. Whereas he was very sweet and very more formal. It was a formal kind of audit of me, which I've never done before <laughs> on a date. So his recollection is that it was excruciating because I wasn't asking enough questions. And I thought my recollection of it was, what a charming fellow. I thought he was... <laughs> He was Delightful. so interested in me, but clearly yeah. you passed. Yeah. Well, I didn't think about it much because I just thought I'm so, I was already in my early forties. He late twenties. He's not interested in me. I'm an old geezer, blah, blah, blah. So I was back then I was traveling a lot for the collection. So I went off on 8 million trips. Barney's was opening more stores back then. And I didn't think about it too much. And then my friend called me and said, well, did you enjoy the date? And I said, yeah, he's fantastic. And he, he said, why don't you call him? And I said, well, did, was he interested in me? And he said, oh, yeah, he liked you. And then at that moment, my guarded English sensibility <laughs> crumbled. And I realized that I really liked him. And I just died for the phone because I thought it took hearing that to realize that I really liked him. That's how boys are stupid that way. <laughs> We're not in touch with our feelings in the right way. How funny. Do you have a favorite memory with, with Jonathan? Well, Jonathan and I have a very similar sort of playful sensibility. And my best memories of him are doing stupid stuff like going skiing, paddle boarding, you know, physical adventures, um, sw you know, swimming in the ocean out in Shelter Island. Um, yeah. Stuff yeah. like that. So very kind of wholesome, I suppose it must it's sound very to people. Wholesome. You're very wholesome. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very curious. What are your feelings on kind of being married to another creative person? Do you get involved in each other's creative processes or it's kind of church and state? Like, how do you balance having two creative minds in one house? People always ask me, how do you balance the aesthetic decision making in your house, mm -hmm. in your home? So um, as Jonathan got more and more involved in furniture and interior design, because when I met him, he was just making pots. Mm -hmm. um, as he's gotten more involved in interiors, rugs, cushions, everything, he is sort of, he's the driving force. Our apartment is his canvas. And I don't get involved. I, you know, there's stuff in our apartment that is like, I have a wonderful old head from one our prince window that we did a head of prince we did a mannequin of prince and that's his head and i have the head you know little things like that that remind me of my years at bonnie's one or two things like that um but it's his canvas and he takes it very seriously and he changes things he's always bringing in new bits and i stay back because i'm not an interior designer you know i did window display and it's all fake you know i remember years ago when I lived in London and I was very punk rock and I glue gunned my curtains up like oh my goodness you, know, you want to put curtains up you can't be bothered to do all the you know you obviously sewed tunnels and mm -hmm. shoved those dowels through and pointing at your curtains <laughs> so like just imagine glue gunning them to the window because yeah. I'm a display person so I recognize that we essentially have very different skills I can't do what he does you know when you look at the ceramics that he's able to make I could never make that in a hundred million years I can make a giant poodle out of pink feather dusters. Love that. You know, yeah. this is why I got my gig on making it as a judge, because I'm good with props, glue guns, paper mache, chicken wire, fake. I'm fake. <laughs> and Johnny is um, 
stuff that he wants your heirs to fight over. I mean, okay. I'd like to see you in like a drag race challenge. I bet you could make some really incredible getup with like glue guns and very ratchet. <laughs> um. So yeah, no, I'm good at crafting things. I used to do drag a lot because my birthday's on Halloween. So when I oh perfect yeah oh, wow. like um you know it was all the pictures I have of me on my birthday I'm in some demented outfit, but it was always <laughs> made from stuff that was lying around the display studio or you know I'm good with that kind of. Make do and mend. Mm -hmm. I love that. How would you say that the two of you inspire each other? Just giving each other a lot of, a little boost of confidence, um, always supporting. I don't get too involved in what he does. I used to write the copy for his mailers and stuff like that, but he's gotten very good at that. Mm -hmm. So I don't do that. I used to do his displays when he had stores. Now he has too many stores mm -hmm. and he has great people that do that. He um, reads a tremendous amount. He's a very smart guy. He went to Brown University. He's a very good editor. I get him to read stuff and um, tell me if it sucks. And yeah. he's a great editor. <laughs> Will he tell you if it sucks? Oh, my God, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I want him to do. Mm -hmm. Like, he'll often say, this is okay, but it needs more zingers. You know, this is not, it's not funny enough yet. It doesn't sound sparkling enough. So, and uh, I... I want him to read it and I want him to tell me. I um, like, I'm going to steal that word. It doesn't sound sparkling enough or it sounds sparkling. I like that. Yeah. It should, there's a, you know, if someone's going to drag their eyeballs across it and read it, there should be some little sizzle. Yeah. Are you ready to get into the random grab bag of questions? That oh, we couldn't I love categorize? a random grab yeah, bag. Yeah, just a random grab bag. Well, so somebody wanted to know, are we going to see you on another season of Making It? Oh, of course, darling. Oh, if good. somebody replaced me, I'd have them killed. I love <laughs> there it. There you have it. There you have it. Um, I'm oh, just kidding. Simon Doonan threatens murder. There's the there's the episode title. No, I it, being a judge on Making It with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman and Dana Isom Johnson is my co-judge and she's the trend ambassador for Etsy. It is the dream job. We have so much fun. We've shot series two, which is going to air in November. Oh, how fun. And, you know, it's Emmy nominated and the Emmys are coming up. Nick and Amy got nominated for an Emmy. And so, you know, we're hoping things are good. We'll get series three, feeling very optimistic about that. So, yes, I love doing that show. And fun fact. Act. Jonathan Adlow also auditioned for the role of expert <gasps> judge. Uh -oh. And guess who got it? <laughs> Me. And oh, I wow. actually did a moth story about it that was on NPR recently on the Moth Hour, all about us both auditioning for this show and what that was like. And then yeah. he thought he was going to get it. Uh oh. And he did uh -oh. it. <laughs> what happens if they replace you with him will you kill him um yes <laughs> <laughs> well there you go yeah um i like this question again these are also random like and totally unrelated from each other how have you seen new york change in your time living here um new york has changed immeasurably the new york i first came to was the new york of studio 54 you know mm -hmm. and it was dark and crime riddled and dirty and exciting um, you know, the punk thing here was great. Disco was great. Um, very, very exciting and fun, but completely out of control. Garbage strikes and financially depressed and blah, blah, blah. So we've gone through that 80s, 90s, 
crack epidemic, graffiti, blah, blah, blah. Now it's this booming, this construction on every block. You never saw a crane in Manhattan in the 70s. No one was building anything. It was the Bronx was burning. You know, people would set fire to buildings there just to... It was cheaper to get the insurance money, blah, blah, blah. It was a wild, wild in back in the day. And now it feels like this booming place. But there's no shortage of edgy, idiosyncratic, creative people such as yourselves. You know, the Brooklyn, everything that's happened outside of Manhattan is astonishing. Hoboken, Brooklyn, everywhere. Astoria, Carroll Gardens, all these places are now infested with interesting, creative people doing interesting stuff. So it's a myth that it's become less interesting or back in the day, it was blah, blah, blah. People tend to glamorize the past, but that's it's not accurate to do that. There are just as many creative, idiosyncratic people. It's just a bigger landscape. Yeah. So you have to rummage a bit more. But they're all there. Well, wait, you asked us about our reading habits. I want to hear, are you a big reader? Yes. What are you reading? What are you reading now? I just read a really weird book. It's an English crime book called The Winker. Ooh. And it's set in the 70s in London. And it's about a guy who's a failed pop star. And he his gimmick was to wink at girls. And then he starts murdering them. I kind of like the oh, sound I of like this. this. Um, it's I'm going good. on Amazon right now. The Winker. Okay. And it's very well written. It's very funny. And um, I guess I related to it because I lived in London at that time. And it's a, you know, it's a pun. Because in England, people call each other wankers. Oh. So oh, he's a yeah. winker, but he's also a bit of a wanker. Yeah. So. Double entendre. Um, yeah, I enjoyed reading that. Just finished that. And then I'm enjoying reading a lot of different things because doing this drag book, I couldn't read anything else except oh, right. books about drag. And in the back of my book, I have a long list of books that I think are fun further reading for people that love to read about drag. Um, so we have our bibliography for drag, but do you have any recommendations for books on fashion history or on fashion icons, like favorites of yours? Um, well, Amy Fine Collins has done a new book on the history of the best dress list, and it's incredible. Oh. Yeah, the history of the, the best dress list, okay. Amy Fine Collins. And it is fantastic. She's an amazing writer, and the pictures uh, are astonishing. Oh, great. We'll have to look that up. Any other favorite fashion books? Um, let's see. The new, you know what's incredible? The catalog for the camp exhibit. Oh. I don't, I go to all those exhibits. I don't off, always buy the catalog because the exhibit's quite fulfilling. Right. I bought this one. It's great. It's got great essays in it about style and camp and what it means. And um, that. And it's also a great overview of, of fashion history. Yeah. How fun. Well, thank you. That's that's all our questions for today. But you've earned what we call a desperation minute. Can you please tell people where they can find you on the internet? Tell them what they want, the, what they can where do Where they can you. get your book and when they can get your book. Um, the book launches, I think, on the 16th of September. So it'll already be out when this goes live. This goes out on the 18th. Yes. And obviously, you can buy it on Amazon. The publishers, Lawrence King and Chronicle Books here in okay. the US. Um you know, feel free to buy it at Barney's or Ooh. Jonathan Adler. Ooh, buy um, it at Jonathan Adler. That's the best way to do it. And where can people find you on Instagram? Um, I think I'm just Simon Doonan. I think. Okay, I think you are too. Yeah, I follow you. 
Is there any anything else that you've going on other than making it coming out in November? Um, let's see. I'm just about to go off to England to do promotions for my book. Okay. Um, so, and then when I come back, we start doing promotions for the show because we've got to advance press for it. So I'm feel pretty busy and I'm toying with another book project, but I can't talk about Ooh. it yet. Ooh. So buy the book, watch Making It in November. And if you're on the Emmy voting committee, vote for Nick and Amy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and watch the episodes of Making It that you miss if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Like binge watch it because it's so fun and ridiculous and great. But the nice thing about crafting, I had to learn to say crafting, <laughs> crafting. instead of crafting. The nice thing about making crafts, being a maker is... Can you just say crafts again? That's so funny. Crafts. Crafts is that um, there's no judgments. People say, oh, I can't craft. I'm no good at it. And I said, hang on, you've missed the point. It's supposed to be something you do for personal pleasure. You don't have to be good at it. And there's no, there's no objective standards here. Just grab your glue gun um, or learn how to macrame or, you know, and Amy Poehler's big mission in life is to get people to put down their phones and make stuff. And she, her and Nick are both very serious about that. You know, he has a wood shop in LA, yeah. he makes furniture. So they're, they're zealots. They believe in the power of crafts and, <laughs> and crafts. How making stuff is, is a great replacement for Candy Crush, darling. It is. I pulled out my knitting needles this weekend. I actually love crafts. My, my blog started as a DIY blog. I would make jewelry and like different craft projects. Oh, did it? And then Candy Crush came along. I know. Maybe you should go. Do you ever go back crafts. there with the crafting? I do. I have a whole box full of crafts downstairs. <laughs> There's such a crafting boom now. I, I think it's sensational, like felt jewelry. Mm-hmm. Don't you love felt jewelry? Do you ever make no, felt? No, not really. Or all the stuff I don't love felt jewelry. <laughs> no, there's really beautiful felt. I like crafts. There's, but I don't you would like the felt, felt earrings jewelry. with the rhinestones on them. You might cool. not. Yeah. Listen, that it's there's plenty of other things. So yeah. Like you obviously like raffia. I do. Yeah. I like knitting. I think it's really relaxing. I make everyone hats. It's all I can make. Yeah. Well, sweaters are immensely complicated. Oh, raglan it, it sleeves. Too much time. When you, my auntie Muriel in Ireland used to knit. Aaron knit sweaters without a pattern. She could just look at you, hold up a tape measure, and offer those. Uh, can you imagine? No. They should have like taken her brain and looked at her DNA because that she could have been a computer programmer but with that many brain. Hours would it take her to make a sweater? Well, forget about the time. How about the counting and sure. those oh ones with different rows with bubbles oh, with in the cables, one and, yeah, yes, and oh. diagonals in the other. Like I always took it for granted, you know. And then I think. Oh my God. And you're on hats and scarves, right? Yeah. Well, scarves are too boring. I like hats. It's quick. It's easy. I also make baby booties for anyone I know who has a baby. Oh, that's great. Those are my two projects. But anyway, enough about me. Buy the book. Watch Making It. Oh, another reason oh, why yeah. you have to buy it. A, there's two reasons why you have to buy Tell this us. book. First reason, it's great. I threw myself into it like Every caption, everything, I put an enormous amount of chutzpah into it. And I, I feel good about it. Great. The second reason is 100% of my proceeds benefit the Alley Forney Center in Harlem, which That's is amazing. The, the center to help at-risk youth, LGBTQ youth who are, you know, homeless yeah. in Harlem. So Alley Forney, A-L-I-F-O-R-N-E-Y, get 100% of my proceeds. So buy it at... 
Barney's or Jonathan Adler, so you have to pay list price and not the cheap Amazon price. So more money goes to the center. Well, either way, my proceeds go. So, you know, but if it goes into reprint, then more proceeds. Yes. So, you know. Do that. Okay. Simon, I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you for having me. I've loved it. You girls are fantabulous. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We loved having you. Grace, how wonderful is Simon? I love him so much. And I love his little Target Boys shirts. Oh my God, he's so adorable. He's the best. Also, I'm not joking. His book is such a great conversation piece. Every human who walks into my apartment asks me about the book. Yeah, it's really fun to just sit and read too. I feel like I learned a lot from it. It's such a cool coffee table book. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's talk more about what we care about. Let's talk about us. Yes. Grace, tell me what you are obsessed with. Well, besides Simon, I'm obsessed with everything Veronica Beard right now. So I went to the fall pre- the presentation, which was the spring collection, this past last week, and everything looks insane. But her fall collection is unreal. The blazers are incredible. I got this amazing um, tweed blazer with rhinestones woven into it, so it's like a subtle Kira Kira filter. The dresses are incredible. Like I just want to wear. That's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about your emerald green suit. Oh, my pa- my pantsuit. It's so cute. Isn't it so cute? I love it. I love it so much. So they were really generous and they gave me that green blazer. And I was like, well, I obviously need a power suit. So I hopped online and I bought the pants. And it's my favorite thing. It's really funny that a power suit is really lame if it's black, but a power suit is really cool if it's a weird color. I blame Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It makes me so happy. I don't have a lot of occasions to wear a power suit, but I'm going to wear it as much as possible. I'm in favor of that. Yeah. And I just love, I love the Veronica's, Veronica Beard is by um, two sisters-in-laws, both named Veronica. I love them. I love the brand. I love that they're inclusive. I love everything about them. So are you ready to go from high to low? Yes. So I'm not taking credit for this because this is your this is discovery. Mine. This is mine. But I'm very obsessed with this. Yes. Um, so Grace has been going. It's actually Hitha's. Hitha told me about them. Why do you keep stealing everything from Hitha? I know. I feel like someone's going to like do an expose on me and how I steal everything from Hitha. Hitha, this is your thunder. This I'm is just your here thunder. to tell people that I love this. So Hitha apparently discovered these sunglasses on Amazon. They look just like Celine's. But they're $11. Mm-hmm. And they're so cute. So I, when we had our wine crawl in the East Village, I definitely left my sunglasses somewhere. Like I lost them. I leave my sunglasses around like their business cards. I'm I like, know, here, you and want I don't, some sunglasses? And that's why I don't like to buy expensive ones. So um, I'd seen you talk about these everywhere. I like came into your apartment one time and you weren't ready. So I was trying on all your sunglasses. And I was like, oh, these are cute on me. So I bought a pair and the obsession has really like multiplied. So mm-hmm. I'm up to three pairs and I have another one in the mail. I have three pairs and I keep trying to order the clear brown ones and they keep sending me regular brown ones because it's Asia. <laughs> and I, I don't, I, I have like, Two of the same pairs. and I'll take them off your hands. No clear brown. Um, but they're so cute. We'll link them in the show notes. But, I mean, they're just $11 Amazon sunglasses that are actually really cute. And I think they're pretty decent quality. Yeah, they're great. And then I don't feel bad if I leave them all over town. Yeah, same. Just going to get a stockpile. I love them. But, yeah, I, I brought them on my vacation. I brought, like, three different pairs. And everyone was like, where are your sunglasses from? And I was like, oh, this really chic place that you probably can't afford called Amazon. <laughs> they're so great. What about on Instagram? So my Instagram obsession is Giovanna Engelbert, and her Instagram name is bat underscore geo. You probably know her because she has a million followers. 
But um, I was at the Tanya Taylor presentation during Fashion Week, and Katie Storino proceeds to lose her mind. She's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's her. And I was like, who? And she's like, it's Giovanna. And I was like, okay, like, who is that? And she's like, literally, every time I don't know what to wear, I go on her Instagram and I copy her outfits. I mean, that's high praise because I think Katie is really cool. So anyone who Katie thinks is really cool is, like, yeah. automatically on the list. Like, I think Katie is my – like, whenever I don't know what to wear, I'm like, what's Katie wearing? I'm going to copy her. And so now we know we have the source of where Katie is getting her inspiration from. But her stuff is great. Um, her outfits are always incredible. She's incredibly stylish. Um, she loves bright colors and florals and fun patterns. Um, I love her feed. Okay, so mine is inspired by your sister. So when your sister came over to record the podcast, she was wearing this insane ring. Oh, like, I I'm love obsessed with it. And we were at dinner with friends, and I was trying to describe it. And she was like, oh, it's a Polly Wales ring. Mm-hmm. And so I started following Polly Wales on Instagram. And her Instagram is just her name, P-O-L-L-Y-W-A-L-E-S. And she has the, all of this, like, bonkers rainbow jewelry that is so cool i can't afford any of it it's very expensive my sister got her ring it was given to her by her husband when she had her daughter but she got it he got it at a sample sale they have sample sales yes oh i i need more information on that yeah we'll find out when the next one is but like i just want all of this Mm -hmm. um so i'm just coveting from afar all of the jewelry that she makes and i find it very satisfying and aspirational yeah what about on the reading front oh my god on the reading front i'm having some good reading so i finished up good girls lie and this week i was like really stressed and one day i woke up at at four and i was like well i can't sleep so i just read until 7 a.m and i finished good girls lie And Good Girls Lie is by J.T. Ellison. It's not out until December 30th. So I know it's annoying when we talk about books that aren't out yet. But what we're doing is we're doing it for you. We're scouting out what our fall and winter books are going to be. And this is a great book. I highly recommend pre-ordering it. It is a mystery thriller set in the South at this this really prestigious all-girls boarding school. And things just start to unravel. um, And there's murders and scary things that happen. It's great. It's the cross section of our interests because it's murder, which is your interest, and it's overprivileged teenagers, which is my interest. Yes. So it really is like in our and Venn secret diagram. societies, which is in both of our interests. Yeah. Yeah. Strongly in the Venn diagram. So love that book. And then this week I just started reading. I haven't been reading as much as usual. I started reading The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. That is the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, and it is really good so far. Did you read the first book? Or no. you just watched the show? I just watched the show. Cheater. I know I'm a cheater. But um, I can pick up on what's going on. Okay. I'm enjoying it. It's it's pretty different. So I'm really, really liking it. What about you? Okay. So I also read Good Girls Lie, which I loved. I thought it was like really twisty and it was a thriller, but I still liked it. This is definitely a contender for January. Really liked it. It comes out December 30th. So... I read that, and now I'm reading this book called The Girl Who Never Read Noam Chomsky by Jenna Casale. I don't know that I pronounced that right. It's J-E-N-A-C-A-S-A-L-E. So this book was another Mary Laura Philpot recommendation. So when I love we, Mary Laura. I love Mary Laura. So I should also say, did you read that article that she wrote about 
I'm starting 40th grade. I haven't, but I have it bookmarked to read. Oh, my God. It's wonderful. That should be my obsession, too. So Mary Laura Philpott, who is one of our favorite authors who lives in Nashville, wrote this op-ed for the New York Times called – I think it's called I'm Starting 40th Grade. And it's about reinvention and how great the school year is because every year – like. She she opens with this example that one year her friend just decided that she was going to go by her middle name. And in adulthood, like that would be a very strange decision to just make. But it's very cool and empowering that like as a kid, you can just every year you get a chance to be somebody different and to start over and how she was taking that spirit into the upcoming year. And I just I loved the article. Uh, I, I can't wait to read it. I love her. Can't recommend it enough. Anyway, Laura, uh, Mary Laura Philpott recommended this book to us when she was on our Nashville show. She brought, like, show and tell the books that she was reading. She was such a great guest. And one of them was this book. And I think the way that she described it was that a friend of hers sent it to her and was like, nothing really happens in this book, but I think you'll love it. And I think that is a very apt description. So I'm only probably 50 pages in, and it's just this very detailed character study of a girl named Lita. And I think that it goes throughout her entire life. She's in college right now where I'm where I am in the book. And it is just like very detailed and introspective. It reminds me a ton of Fleischman is in trouble. Okay. But from a female perspective. Ah. And it is so spot on about body image and dating. And I just like, I find myself shaking my head. And it's also these short chapters that kind of read like vignettes because she's right. Nothing much is happening. So it's very easy to dip in and out of the book. But it's the type of book that I just want to read four pages at a time, like on the subway or at a cafe or somewhere where you're not like, I don't think it would be a great book to sit down with on a Saturday and be like, let's do this. Yeah. But it's it's a great book to dip in and out of. And I'm finding it just so charming. Oh, I love it. I have Mary Laura's copy, so I'm going to read that. You need to. Yeah. Loving it. If you are looking for something to read and none of those struck your fancy, you can also join us for our September book club, which is next week. Next week. And this book is one of the books I'm most excited about this year. So we're reading American Royals by Catherine McGee. And it's young adult, but it's not super young adult. And it basically asks the question, what if George Washington was the first king of the United States instead of the first president? And so it's set in present day. And there's these three great, 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 great grandchildren of George Washington. Um, and the oldest, Princess Beatrice, is about to ascend the throne as the first female monarch. And so, you know, she's grappling with that. There is some troublemaking twins who are younger than her. There's like drama. There's a love story. There's fake politics. It's great. It's so great. It's it just, I mean, everything Katie writes is amazing. I could just gush and gush about her, but it's so much fun. It's such a great escapist, fun You'll read book. it in a day. So read that. We're talking about it next week. Katie's also coming on the podcast as a guest for a bonus episode to talk about all the behind the scenes of the book. And yeah. give us, she schools us in some history. Seriously. Um, so definitely pick that up. And if you want even more of us, Grace, where can people find you on Instagram? I'm at Grace Atwood and my blog is thestripe.com, Becca. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. Yeah. So make sure you're subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And we would love it if you left us a review. Yeah. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye. 